Amen. You may be seated. Uh, good morning. It's good to see everybody here this morning. Let me say this. There always seems to be uh, somewhat of an interest uh, in the early lives of famous people. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. If somebody is, is, is world-renowned, known throughout the world, uh, famous from history's past, people want to know what it is about them, what, what influenced them or who influenced their lives to bring about such positive change and impact. Uh, likewise, when uh, people are known for bad things, uh, perhaps terrible things, even sins and crimes against humanity, people want to know specifically what actually went wrong because obviously we want to stay away from it as much as possible. Well, I think you would recognize and agree that there has been no more famous person in all of world history than the person of Jesus Christ. So clearly, there is going to be some interest about his childhood. And so this is certainly true for the second and th- this was certainly true in the second and third centuries, where a large number of legends begin to appear and begin to spread about the early life of Jesus Christ. Let me read you one of these stories from uh, an apocryphal book known as the Gospel of Thomas, which means it's not a real gospel. But this is what was written about Jesus. When the boy Jesus was five years old, he was playing at the ford of a brook, and he gathered together into the pools the water that flowed by and made it at once clean and commanded it by his word alone. And the son of Annas, the scribe, was standing there with Joseph, and he took a branch of a willow and with it dispersed the water which Jesus had gathered together. When Jesus saw what he had done, he was enraged and said to him, you insolent, godless dunderhead, what harm did the pool and water do to you? See now that you will, you will wither like a tree and shall bear no leaves, nor root, nor fruit. And immediately that lad withered up completely. And Jesus departed and went into Joseph's house. But the parents of him who was withered took him away, bewailing his youth, and, 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 and brought him to Joseph and reproached him, saying, What a child you have who does such things. After this again, he went, speaking of Jesus, went through the village, and a lad ran and knocked against his shoulder. Jesus was exasperated and said to him, you shall not go further on your way. And the child immediately fell down dead and died. And some who saw what took place said, from where does this child spring, since every word is an accomplished deed? Now, this sounds exactly like the Jesus you and I know, doesn't it? It sounds like Jesus to be the type of uh, gentleman that would call somebody a dunderhead and cause them to wither uh, because they played with his plaything and messed with his plaything or strike somebody dead because they accidentally ran into him. That sounds exactly the Jesus we've come to love and to praise. No, not at all. Why? Because all of this is legend. All of this is made up. In fact, we know very little about Christ's childhood at all. In fact, the real gospels, the four gospels found in the New Testament, only tell us about one actual story from the early life of Jesus Christ when he was a child and in between a child and a teen. So, so what we do is we find it in the Word of God. And here's the thing. It's not nearly as exciting or as exhilarating as the story that I just read to you. In fact, it's almost completely devoid of miracles at all. And I think the reason why is because Jesus didn't perform a miracle then until much actually later when his ministry actually officially began. But even more so, his point is not to emphasize his deity, but rather his humanity. Not to emphasize his power, but rather his perfection. 
So before we take the Lord's Supper this morning, let's take a look at our perfect Christ, who we do love and who we do cherish and who we do worship. Look at two aspects of his perfection. The first thing I want you to see this morning is this. In Christ, we see a perfect substitute. We see a perfect substitute. Now, we pick up in verse 39. The Bible says, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to, uh, unto Galilee in their own town of Nazareth. Now, what he's referring to is he's talking about Mary and Joseph. And what we saw last week is that Mary and Joseph were doing everything they could to fulfill and to obey the law of Moses, especially where it was concerned with their son, Jesus. So according to the law of Moses, on the eighth day, when Jesus was eight days old, they had him circumcised. When he was 40 days old, they had brought him to dedicate him in the temple to God himself. So they were very careful to do everything they were commanded to do. And when they had accomplished it all, the Bible says that they went home, which would have been Nazareth. And this is where Jesus grew up. The Bible says, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So what's interesting about this text of scripture is it actually ends the, exactly the way that it begins. Uh, that verse right there that talks about that he grew uh, is actually repeated once again in verse 52. Notice this. It says that he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God uh, and man. So one sentence repeated two times basically sums up the first 12 years of Jesus' life. And he sums it up with two words, basically, he grew. The reason for this is because his emphasis is, again, on the humanity of Jesus Christ. He's not interested in sharing Jesus' power, but the fact that Jesus Christ in every way was exactly like you and I. He, he came in flesh and blood, which means that he, he experienced every, every stage of life like you and I. He was a baby. He was a toddler. He was, he, he was a, a young child. He was a teenager. He came in the flesh. He, he experienced the same needs that you and I did. He, he needed to be comforted as a child. Uh, he, did you think that things, he would be hungry? He, we know that he was hungry. He had need to feed. So, so even when he, later on during his ministry, when he's out in the wilderness for 40 days not eating at all, when Satan actually tempts him to turn the stones to bread, this is an actual temptation. This isn't just a story. He's on the verge of starving to death. That's how real it was for him. And not only in the area of food and drink, but also in the area of sleep. We see Jesus come in so exhausted, like so exhausted from ministry that he falls asleep in a boat that is about to be torn apart by a violent storm. Uh, we see Jesus as well being real physically, which means that if you beat him, he would bruise. If you cut him, he would bleed. The emphasis here is, again, from the beginning to end, is about the fact that Jesus Christ, yes, was God, but he was also fully man. And so he grew physically. And not only did he grow physically, that he grew intellectually. And notice that's exactly what he means by when he says filled with wisdom. Now, I have to admit, understanding how Jesus would have grown physically is a lot easier to understand than how he grew intellectually. If you know anything about your Bibles, we know that Jesus was God and that Jesus was omniscient. Omniscient means he knows everything, right? So how does somebody grow in understanding and knowledge when they already know everything? Well, the answer to that was actually given to us by Paul in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6. 
Paul said there, he says, though he, speaking of Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Here's what he said. He says, God from eternity's past, Jesus uh, existed as God. He had no beginning, he had no end. But there was a time in history specifically where he became man. But when he became man, he didn't give up his divinity. It wasn't like, okay, I'm going to be God, now I'm going to be man. He continued to be God fully, but he took on humanity. So he was fully God and he was fully man. And when he became man, he didn't give up his attributes and his power and abilities as God. He didn't give them up altogether or he would cease to be God. Are you tracking with me? Instead, what he says, Paul says, is he says he took those rights and those attributes and he set them aside. They were there for him to take back. He could use them at any moment, but he set them aside in what? In submission to the heavenly father, for the heavenly father to give him what it was that he needed day after day after day. This included understanding. Okay, so this means that as he grew, he began to understand more and more. He wasn't at two years old uh, uh, being able to uh, understand uh, all the mysteries of the world. That, so, so get that. Why? He had to do that because he had to be fully human like you and I. So that there were going to be some limitations that he took upon himself, willing to, so that he can identify with you and I. Uh, I, I love what <clears throat> one particular author says about this in writing about Jesus. He, he, he tells us that Jesus himself, we don't know everything about it, but it's probably safe to say that Jesus, when he was two, that he was not able to perform the complex computations of differential calculus. He couldn't even solve for X. And when he was six, he did not know the percentage of hydrogen in Jupiter's atmosphere or the distance between Earth and Alpha Centauri. And I could say, I am not two and I am not six, and I don't know the answers of any of those either, right? So, but it's probably safe to say that when Jesus was a child, he didn't know these things. And so here's, here's where, the, where the difficulty is. We don't know exactly, there's mystery in this. We don't know exactly what he knew, when he knew it, or specifically how he knew it. We knew that some things he learned from his parents, some things from the Holy Spirit uh, directly, some things from religious leaders. He would learn all these things. But how all of that works is a little bit of a mystery. All that is not a mystery is that he was the God-man, that he was fully God and he was fully man. And even though we've emphasized so much of his divinity through the prophecies that have been given up to in, in Luke chapter, in, in Luke leading up to this point, now he really wants us to tell that he was actual flesh and blood. And that was absolutely necessary for us. Why? Because if he was going to be our substitute on the cross, it couldn't be a ghost or a phantom or an image of Jesus Christ. It had to be a fleshly body. Our sin debt had to be placed on him and the wrath of God had to pour out on flesh and blood. And that's precisely what happens. Isaiah chapter 53 and verses four through five says this, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. That's a true wounding of his flesh. And he says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. It's, I think we naturally understand this idea of substitution. 
I think if, if it makes sense that if you're going to have a substitute, then it needs to be an equal substitute. Like if you're going in for surgery on Monday and your doctor calls you the night before and says, look, I'm not going to be able to make it. I've got a tea time at two. Not going to be able to make it. First of all, that's disturbing, but I'm not going to be able to make it. Instead, I'm going to send a substitute, but don't worry. He's a great guy. He shows up and you say, are you a substitute? And he says, yes, I'm a substitute teacher at Yulee High School. I'm here to do the surgery. Now, nothing against substitute teachers. We appreciate them. We love all of you if you are one. I just don't want you cutting on me, all right? And so, so we understand that. Or wives, think about it for a moment. If your husband tells you, hey, I want to meet. I want to take you out for dinner. We're going to go on this great date in the midst of COVID. Bring your mask and all everyone's depressed. And so you go and, and you go out, but then you get this text and say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to make it, but I'm going to send a substitute. Okay, already this is very, very strange, all right? And I mean, COVID's messed up everything, but that's really messed up. And then, but, but you're, you're, you're really surprised when you show up and the substitute is a monkey. And the monkey comes in, 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 in some of you ladies are gonna sit there and you're gonna say, this just is not going to cut it. Other ladies are gonna have to fight the temptation to say, hey, this is actually an upgrade, I'll take it. Okay, don't, that's not where you wanna be. But I think you understand that if it's going to be a substitute, it needs to be sameness. And so what we have here is with Jesus Christ, we have sameness when he comes. He was fully and completely human. This is why we see in the Old Testament that animals being sacrificed year after year after year. You you notice that through the Old Testament, right? Every year, the priests have to go in and sacrifice animals over and over again, even hundreds and thousands and even millions of animals through their history being sacrificed. Why the continual sacrifice? Because an animal cannot be a sufficient uh, substitute for a human being. So those animal sacrifices would pacify God's wrath towards us, but only for a period, only for a time, until the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, would come and satisfy the wrath of God once and for all. We read in the Word of God, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 4 through 7, for it is impossible, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, now this author of, uh, of Hebrews quotes Christ, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offering you have taken no, these offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. What would that be? That he would come in a form of a man, being perfectly human to be the perfect substitute for you and for me. Amen, amen, and amen. So that's the perfect substitute that we see. But we also see a perfect submission. Now, I think that this is what Luke has in mind when he says at the end of verse 40 in verse 52, and the favor of God was upon him. Why was the favor of God upon Jesus Christ? Because he had submitted to to God in every way. And now we pick up in verse 41. We see this begin to unfold. It says there, it says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. Now the law of the time actually commanded that every adult Jewish male would go three times to Jerusalem to observe the three major religious festivals of the year. This particular festival, Joseph is, in, in, again, honoring the law of Moses, fulfilling the law of Moses. He goes, and he, he goes this particular time to observe the feast of the Passover, which was the most significant feast for the Jewish people. 
The reason for that is because it commemorated the God uh, uh, relieving his people, rescuing his people out of the slavery of Egypt. You remember the story, right? God sends Moses, and he says, let my people go. Pharaoh goes, no, I don't think so. Uh, we're going to keep them. Uh, we like them here. And he says, okay, let me try to convince you. So God sends a series of plagues. Do you remember this? The very last plague is a death angel that God sends. This death angel begins to go over all of, of um, Egypt, and he begins to basically put to death the firstborn son of every home, of every male, unless somebody by faith had applied blood across the doorpost that had been shed by a lamb, and then what would happen? This angel would pass over and not take the life of the firstborn. Now, I'm sharing this to you because it's historically important for the context. This is one of the first trips that Jesus took as a youth. It's also significant because what Luke is pinning to, I think this is foreshadowing, because he's letting you know even at a very young age he was going, and we have this picture of the Passover, of the lamb being slain, because later at the end of the book, guess what happens? Jesus takes another journey to Jerusalem to observe what? The feast of the Passover, only this time God will not, will not pass over the wrath of the son, and he will give up his son for slaughter. And for all those, there will be an even greater release of slavery. That is the slavery of sin for all who place their faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you see that coming? So from the very beginning, we already see this picture of why Jesus Christ has ultimately come. And notice this in verse 43. It says, And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in a group, they went a day's journey. But they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, Jesus' parents, this shows just the realness, the humanity of it. They experience the terror that all parents at one time or another experience, and that is the misplacing of a child, Yes. It's that moment where, and it can be just about anywhere. It can be in a grocery store, at a sporting event. It could be at a theme park. And just for a moment, the child that was there, because I've said this to my wife, they were just there. They were just there, right? When she goes, where's the child? They were just there. And you turn around and they're gone, maybe for three seconds, Lord willing, three seconds, maybe three minutes, but usually not three days like happens here. And so Jesus' mom is very concerned. She's fretting. She doesn't know. See, it's, it's even worse for her. So it's not about misplacing a child. It's misplacing the Savior of the world. So we get this, right? So she's, she doesn't want to be the one that loses the Savior. Where did the Savior go? Yet nobody wants that. So they begin to immediately look, and, and they find out. Now, how did all of this happen? Well, they would have been traveling not alone. They would have been traveling in a caravan, which would have been friends and family, and they would have traveled. They were traveling for a day, and because he was 12 years old, which was just about marrying age, they figured that he can find his way, and he's going to hang out with his friends and family members. But a day goes into it. They then try to find him. They can't find him. They ask everybody. Nobody knows where he is. They say, oh, no, he is back 
where we left him. And so they begin to go back. So it takes another day to get back. And then a third day it takes them to be able to find him. They're looking all over in Jerusalem, everywhere, retracing their steps. They finally go back to the temple, and this is where they find Jesus. And, and this is, again, so human of us. When, and, and I love this. When, when Mary comes back to him, and she's basically, she says, Son, why have you treated us so? She says, she says, behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Parents, you know what this is like, right? You're so relieved, but you're so mad at the same time, right? I could just pinch your little head off. That's kind of what she's doing. Why would you do this to your mom and, and your dad? Here's Jesus' response. He says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in the father's house? Now, here's what's interesting. Despite the, the description of Mary and Joseph's turmoil, and really, if you were to break all this down and break all the verbs down, very boring, I know. But if you were to break them all down, what you find is there is more said about Joseph and Mary in this text than there is about Jesus, about what they did and how they went to the temple and how they left and tried to be obedient to God. And then they couldn't find Jesus. And then they were worried. And then they begin to go back. And then they begin to search him. And now they're speaking again. And then Jesus has kind of like this little small part. But yet the, the weight of the verb, is, of all the verbs, is placed mostly on the verb found in verse 43, where it says, he stayed behind. Everybody else left. He stayed behind. Why? Jesus answers the question for himself. Jesus answers the question, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Here's a literal translation of that. I must be in the things of my father. Well, if you want to be about the things of your father and in the things of your father, there's no other better place to do that than in the temple. Because in the temple, it was all things God all the time. His presence was manifest in the Holy of Holies. There were sacrifices for sins being made and, uh, unto God on behalf of the people there. People were being taught the, the law of God. There was even a proselytizing that was going on for Gentiles, for them to come to faith in the one true God. And so Jesus, everybody else leaves. He says, I can't leave. This is all about my Father's business, and I have come to do the Father's business. Why, why would it surprise you that this is where I am? And so this is interesting because this is what we hear from Jesus time and time again in full submission of Jesus, in full submission to the Father. What does he say consistently to his ministry? He says in John chapter 6 and verse 38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who has sent me. Then in John chapter 8 and verse 29, he said, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And then, and then right before Jesus is crucified on the cross, when he's struggling with his humanity and the weight of the wrath of God that's about to pour out on him on that cross, he, he says, Lord, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Take the cup of suffering away from me, but, say it with me, but not my will, but your will be done. And so we don't have to look all over Scripture to see the submission. We see it right in the text of Scripture. No, notice how the very end of the text actually works. I think this is just brilliant writing. He comes to him in verse 51, and he says, And he went down with them. This is Jesus speaking that after they came back and got him. Went down with them, and he came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Now, I think you would agree. If a child ever had a reason not to submit to his parents, Jesus probably would have that reason. Because he's not just their children. He's also their God and their creator. Okay? 
and, and their Lord and their Savior. But he submits to their authority. Why does he submit to their authority? Um, because he submits to the authority of his father. His father said to honor your father and mother. So what does he do? Not his will, but the will of the father who had sent him in every area of his life. When we look at this and we think of the Lord's Supper that we're about to have, and I'm so thrilled that we're able to gather together, aren't you? To be able to take of the Lord's Supper, even though it's weird because we got this thing and it's going to be strange. It's all good, but thank God the body gets to come together. And that's, that's what the Bible says. We take it when we gather together. The ecclesia, the gathering, the assembly that we come back together. And so when we begin to think on this, we need to begin to think about these truths before we take the Lord's Supper. We need to think as Christ is a perfect substitute because that's why we're here. We understand and we recognize when we take of the bread and we take of the blood that this is, no, this is not the bread and this is not his body and his blood, but it certainly represents actual body and blood that was beaten and was shed on our behalf. Jesus Christ suffered for you and for me. It was a real and absolute suffering on his part as a substitute for you and I, and it was the perfect substitution. But we also understand Jesus Christ in his perfection. Jesus obeyed perfectly, which you and I both agree you and I both agree that we do not obey perfectly. Would we agree with that? And so what we need is we need the perfect submission on the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because on that cross, yes, he took upon our sin, but those who place his faith in him take upon his righteousness. In that, in, twice now in that text, it says that he grew in the favor of God, or the favor of God was on him is what it actually says. The favor of God was on him. Why? Because of obedience. Now, for those who are in Christ Jesus, the favor is, of God is upon us. Why? Because what we've done? No, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. This is a beautiful picture. And so the question is, is this morning is, look, do we recognize him as a substitute? But we also recognize him as our authority and when we come to take the Lord's Supper, it's a time not only to confess sin, but also to submit ourselves to God and the areas that we are not submitting him ultimately in. Now, I could probably give you a long list of areas that we are not submissive, but can I give you one this morning? Just one. There are many people today, and I want to say this right before we take of this, there are, there are many people today in our church very concerned with what's going on in our country. Amen? You're like, are you setting us up? Because I feel like this is a setup. I'm not going to Jesus juke you. Just trust me for a moment. Very, very, very concerned with what's going on in the country. There is an increasingly more secularism going on all the time, an anti-Christian uh, push of Christian ideals, Christian values, all of these things. We see it. It's, it's clear within, with, within our culture. And some genuinely, and I love this, I've had so many discussions with people who have said, whether it be through phone calls or, or in person, sitting down, eating with them, or, or, or whatever it is, emails, of saying, I, I, just, I just need to know, I need to know what to do. What, what is it that we, we do? How, how do we stand up? Shouldn't we as a church be speaking out? Shouldn't we be doing something? Shouldn't we be making a stand? And here's the thing, I'm not the brightest guy in the world. But I have to ask the question, well, what do you suggest? No, seriously, what do you suggest? 
Does speaking up louder mean to go to Facebook and take everybody off? Speaking up, does it mean writing a congressman or congresswoman? Speaking up, does it mean taking an ad out in the paper? Does it mean me getting up in the pulpit and, and telling everybody how cruddy everything is? Wouldn't that be great to come to church and just the preacher just talk about how bad everything is? Church would probably grow, to be honest with you. It's just terrible. Everybody just complaining about how everything is. What, what exactly does it mean? And what exactly does it mean to take a stand? Now, let me say this. I love all of these individuals and everybody's concerned because I think that it comes from a genuine concern. I don't think they're being facetious. I think that we're just sitting back and we're asking ourselves, what can we do, Pastor? What can we say? What kind of stance can we end up making on all of this? Well, maybe some of those things that I mentioned, maybe some of those things are what we do, but I'm really not sure. But this I know, what we have clearly been commanded to do is what we fail to do most. And that is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with lost people. It is what we fail to do the most. And I have patience, but just like you, they wear thin. When Christians tell me how they hate the fact that they feel as though their rights are being taken away as Christians. And it, and it seems that it's going that way, doesn't it? It seems like there were churches and people are trying to pass laws where you can't gather and you can't do this and, and, and you can't do all of these things. So, so maybe that is at the cusp and we know that those rights are ultimately going to be taken. And I understand the concern. I understand the concern. That would be a horrible thing. People even asked me, said, well, what will we do? I'm offended that you would have to ask. Do we not every week preach on submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? We will do what God has called us to do. We will obey and we will submit. And you say, you can't gather, we will gather. So I don't know, what, it's, it's, I don't know why that has to be spelled out. We are people of God in submission to him, following the example of Jesus Christ in his submission. That is what we do. But let me, let me say this. Is it possible that the reason that our rights are in peril is because you and I are not faithful and submissive to God to use those rights for the business of God? To say I'm afraid of losing rights, but not do the very thing that God has called you to do as a believer and be faithfully sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, to me is disingenuous. To me, it is about your business and my business and not about the business of God. And if we are children of God, what we find and we, we read in the word of God is that we are imitators of Christ who says, I'm here to do the will of the Father who sent me. And you and I cannot submit to him and to be about his business if you and I open our mouth constantly, but it is never in faithful witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would call us to do two things this morning in submission to him. Number one, I would call and ask you to join me to pray for our governing authorities. Could you do that? That's the first thing that we can do. Forget the Facebook thing. Go to God in prayer. Pray. The Bible tells us that we're submit to them. Romans, th Romans 13, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 teaches us what? That we are to pray for those in governing authority. Here's a great way to be able to pray. God, 
Allow those, we pray for our, those in governing authority, senators, congressmen, every president, everybody else, we pray for them. Even if they're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I pray that you will save them. But even if they are not, God, move their hearts like you move and control the water and bring about that they will do your will as you have called them to be able to do, including to be able to preserve the rights and the religious rights that have been given to us by the country and under God, okay? So, so that's one thing. Can we all agree with that? But then will we pray this morning? And this is where I really want you to commit yourself. That we will be faithful to use the privileges that we have to do the business that God has called us to. Actually opening up our mouths and being a faithful gospel witness to the world in which we are in. And again, I say, is it possible that these rights might be in peril because we have not done what God has called us to do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you. We thank you for this morning. God, before we take the Lord's Supper, we need to do business with you. God, we thank you. We're, we're about to take the Lord's Supper where, God, you were the perfect, perfect substitute for us. We recognize that you have, we've been purchased by your blood. And therefore, we must perfectly, we must seek to submit to you in all ways, God. We know that it couldn't be perfect. That's why Christ was sent for us. But certainly we can grow in that submission. So God, I pray that we will in many areas, every area that you bring to our mind. But God, what has been heavy on my heart is that his people will be about the business of God, doing the will of God. God, if your son's mission was to redeem mankind through his sacrifice, then those who have been redeemed by that sacrifice's job is to proclaim it. Let us be faithful to do what you've called us to do. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Altar's going to be open. If you want to pray or pray with me or come to the altar, please do it. Can, can we do this? Can, can we just for a moment, y'all, just for a moment, can we just not sit there and go, okay, let's wrap up, let's get ready, and we're about to move, and actually take a few moments to really respond to whatever it is that the Holy Spirit's saying in, to us through the preaching of his word. Let's take a moment to sincerely do it, okay? All right.